What's up everyone, welcome to the Tier 1 Podcast. I'm your host, as always, and today we are speaking to Nick Shepard, who is mentioned in the first podcast we did with Camille Case. He's a big scary dude on the surface, but honestly he's one of the sweetest, kindest people you could ever meet. He's a teacher uh, in his actual job. But he's very much a, a mentor as well t- to me in you know in martial arts that he taught me a lot of what I know. He also just teaches me a lot about just life. Um, he's had a really interesting life himself, uh, not an easy one by by any stretch. Um, Nick was a finalist in the British K1 kickboxing tournament, which if you know anything about kick- kickboxing, you'll know that is you know very. Um, very difficult thing just to embark on. So yeah, here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I could uh, listen to Nick talk for for hours and hours on end. Uh, If you do like the show, have a look at our Facebook page, follow us on there, subscribe to the show on wherever you get your podcasts. And here it is, my conversation with Nick Shepard. All right, Nick, we are recording. We're on. <laughs> okay, so um, Nick, we're, I think we're going to start this as as I have before, and um, just find out. We're going to find out about a lot more than because we know we've known each other for many years now, but we've never really kind of had a too many chats where we just kind of sat down and just talked to each other. A lot mm-hmm. of time, it's just been in the gym and shooting the shit, and you know <laughs> that kind of thing. So, I'm glad you said shooting the shit. That means you're allowed to swear. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool, yeah. Cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I wanted to start where where we first met, and in my memory of it, um, it was either at Tiger Gym for the first time, or it was when my mum would be going shopping, and you're not allowed to say the name. Okay, at an unnamed um supermarché, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. You know, you worked um worked there, and you're my mum's favourite person to go to when uh <laughs> when um you know we were getting shopping in. So I don't know. Do you remember? Do you remember meeting me or my mum or even my dad in a tiger gym for the first time? I do remember meeting you guys at the uh, supermarket, mm. and your mum was one of the few people who spoke to the staff as if they were people and not just folk to get in the way and do stuff for them. So I remember coming in with your dad. He always seemed quite cool, although he didn't talk much. He's quite guy, isn't he? <laughs> he can be until you get to know him. Um, and I think you were extremely young when I first met you there. At the gym, I can't remember our first meeting. I think you guys came in and you were just keen to learn and keen to do stuff. And I was still in that whirlwind of competing yeah. And having to be separated from the general class <laughs> to do all the heavy stuff that goes with fighting and training for fighting. Right, yeah. So when did you, you didn't start in Thai boxing, did you? You started in Krite, wasn't it? Oh, dude. Was it? <laughs> um, when I was nine years old, I stumbled across a martial arts club, which I later discovered was a ninjutsu. How was it? It was. And I then. The the club just disappeared. 
it's the second time it happened. Sorry, first time it happened, but it's happened twice to me in total at the moment. Um, at nine, got into it, really, really cool kind of style, light learning stuff. And when it disappeared, didn't have anywhere to go. So spent a few years not doing much. And then found a kickboxing club, which was just something I wanted to do. Get me active. I was a bit of a chubby kid. So I needed to get some kind of fitness down. <laughs> um, and then got hunger for knowledge. Right. So started doing kickboxing at a place called Fir Tree Primary School. It was just a club that came, and I can't remember the name of the club, I can't remember the name of any of the instructors, mm. um, and started doing karate, wadru karate, and kickboxing. They were taught by the same people, so I thought, yeah, why not? It's more time training, more time learning. I was talking to a friend at school who did Shotokan karate, he was like bragging about his instructor and how his sensei was really, really kind of passionate about what he did. Sounded good. Went along, spent two years doing Shotokan Karate, as well as doing kickboxing and Wadaru. And just any club that I came across that I could afford, I went to, which brought me to the second ninjutsu club, which was in town. There was a big centre where the Chinese market is, called Chunyi Martial Arts. And they had a ninjutsu club. Every Wednesday night, I went with a friend, turned up one Wednesday night, no one's there crazy right it's like these clubs are there one moment and then just disappear they don't exist anymore it's weird secret, really really weird out of ninjutsu clubs yeah <laughs> yeah well you remember the one that we went to yeah and you had to be invited into the club oh, you, right. you yeah, could you couldn't just um find it and log on yeah you had to have been known to the club and yeah. then have them allow you to to yeah, apply yeah. to be part of the group I was speaking to the guy that run. You remember Peter? Yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was. I think he's just. Jo- uh, uh, he's at the gym that I work at now. Basically. Is it David Lloyd's? Yeah, oh, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, Does he teach there? No, as in he's. I think his missus is a, is a member there and stuff. So, okay. Um, so yeah, they think we should go there for general. Tra- I saw him a while back. I think it was Christmas. He was just on like a trial or something. And okay. He's joined now, so yeah. That's pretty sure cool. See him now and again. Um. But yeah, how old were you when, when this was going on? When when the club disappeared? The first one, the first one, like I said, I was around nine, ten years old. Mm. The second one, I was fourteen. I was in high school. Okay, and you went and you were travelled into town. Where were yeah. you living at that time? Deanswood View, okay. in Mal Woodley, I think it was Moralton right. Way, Mal Woodley. Okay, it's kind of on the border. Bit of a journey, isn't it? So for a fourteen-year-old, anyway. Well, it was a good, eek, it was a good half hour on the bus. Yeah, and it was usually quite dark. Right. So, mum wasn't happy about me spending an hour and a half waiting outside this club for someone to turn up to open up. Mm. But it was important. It was an unfortunate thing. I had no idea how to get into it. I had no idea if someone's just going to be late. And yeah. as a fourteen-year-old, I thought, right, well, my bus isn't going to be here for another X amount of time. I'll give it however long I need to give it. Yeah, and it just like I say, it just disappeared. Um, there was the martial arts shop town, martial arts shop in town, and I remember asking that dude if he knew anything about it, and he said that they'd moved to another club at the edge of Bradford. 
Okay. Or another premises. Hmm. Never got back into it, unfortunately, until we found the, well, I think you found the budget camp thing in Headingley, didn't you? I think so, yeah. My memory of it's not great, but yeah. Hmm. And again, that was fantastic. It's like taking a trip down memory lane and just learning stuff that is hundreds of years old. People still want to learn it. It's a craft, it's an art, and it's a wonderful thing to learn. Yeah. I just wish the floor was more forgiving. <laughs> that was brutal, wasn't it? Just oh, was, dude, it's, yeah. it's nothing quite like rolling on a concrete floor with the hard as nails freaking carpet. Yeah. It's completely unforgiving when you've been thrown and taken down. Yeah. The carpet didn't give you any padding, it just give you a bit more of like a rash burn. Yeah. It? yeah. Yeah. It was like falling onto concrete and then having fallen onto a concrete and then burning a load of skin <laughs> yeah. from you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how well, I mean, obviously it's an uncommon thing, I guess, for a for a nine year old to just be doing kind of Well what what else were you into? I mean, did, was it just like did you always have a passive interest in martial arts or was it Love martial arts. Yeah. My grandfather was a very cool guy. Had a love for the Chinese cinema and all the kung fu films oh, right. in kind of the the Bruce Lee era. Yeah. When everyone from China was making kung fu films. Yeah. I remember watching them and thinking, wow, that is amazing. I want to do stuff like that. And as a kid, watching things like the Power Rangers and the Ninja Turtles, it was stuff that interests me. They're fighting more than the show, I'll be honest. Mm. The Power Rangers sucked ass. I wanted it to be so cool when it came out, but it was like, no, mate, no, you're in tights and you're doing all these wimpy little, no, just no. (laughs) Yeah. Although, having watched the new movie, the new movie's quite cool. I've not seen it, yeah. It's a laugh. <laughs> yeah. It's a complete piss take of the original. It just okay. is not serious, yeah. which is quite nice. Uh, yeah, but I think that, uh, there was some trailer that came out for some like darker version of Power Rangers. I think I saw that. Oh, with the blood and guts. I think so, yeah. yeah. I saw that. And if it, was, if it ever got made that way, it would be breathtaking. Yeah. You know, that brutality yeah, yeah. instead of it being all colourful and playful. <laughs> yeah, let's pull people apart. Right, yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Um so yeah, um I mean when you have you always lived in Leeds, is it? Since I came to England, yes. Right. You originally from Trinidad, is it? Yes. Yeah. I was originally born in Trinidad and me and my mother came over I think I was four. Okay. Although I remember having a birthday Shortly after getting to England. Right. So I was about four or five years old. Okay. And we got a very cheap kind of bedsit place in Chapel Town. Mm. Spent a few months there. My mother got sick of the rats and we moved to a place in the Hair Hills. Right. Spent a few years there. Moved to Al Woodley, which is a massive step up for us. Yeah. Going from Hair Hills to Al Woodley. And that's pretty much where I stayed for the next few years. I think it was about another 10 years or so. It's a big move for your mum, though, to bring, you know, four-year-old you over um, mm. across big, big journey. Um, yeah. What, what, what was it that kind of... Was it just you and your mum, or did your granddad come over with you? Or? Um, my mother's family moved to England, I believe, in the mid-60s. My grandfather had come over to learn to be an accountant... He was a very intelligent guy, 
and he did the classic thing of I'm going to go someplace on my own. I'm going to lay down the foundation of a family home and I'm going to save up and bring my family over. Right. So it was him and I think it's nine kids. Oh, wow. So him, his wife, my mother and her eight siblings. Yeah. Um, and that's what he did. Again, he brought brought himself over with just about nothing. He put himself through university. He started up a business, made a life for his family in England. Yeah. So my mother ended up spending a few years in England becoming a nurse. And that's, again, how she spent her, that's how she spent her life. Yeah. Sounds like you're really kind of like, Granddad was like a big part of your life. You like speak about him quite inspiring, like actually. He was a very cool guy. Um, I don't know the term for a Muslim priest, but that's what he was. Mm. And he was a very devout Muslim and I had no interest in it. Right. He tried so many times to push me down that path and it was just like, no, I'm bored. Leave me alone, mate. It's, I'm, I'm bored. Let's you watch know. Ninja Turtles. <laughs> well, let me watch Kung Fu movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, let me watch. Let me watch Junker Master again because that was funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he he did so many things for other people. He almost ran his business into the ground because of his philosophy and his beliefs. You know, he was. I hate the term running a business, but he was mm. running a business. And who was letting people pay him in favours instead of cash. Right. Which is nice, but not particularly smart. But he did it because that's what he believed was right. And for a guy that goes to prisons and talks to prisoners and gives them that little bit of dignity. You know, there's a lot of him that I liked. When I first met him, you know, we used to wrestle. Oh, right. And that was fun. And then he, he got a little bit more frail as I got bigger. So he was always a pretty cool guy. My grandmother was a battle axe. Oh, really? You know, she hated me from the first time she saw me. <laughs> but, yeah, um, her and my mother and me had a very similar relationship. She didn't get on with my mother very much. Oh, really? Um, and they were, it was just one of them things, you know, family feuds that you don't quite get until you're much older. Right. So... Did, did yeah. you have, I mean, obviously your mum had a lot, a lot of siblings, I guess, but um, did you have any siblings? Um, my mother had a marriage. She was married to an Englishman mm. before she went back to Trinidad. And she had three children, two biological, one adopted. Right. So, in reality, I have two sisters and an older brother. Oh, right. And have you ever met them? Or I've met them. I... I can't really say I don't like them. I just don't have not, any interest in them. Yeah. You know, my my family have been very unpleasant for a lot of the time that I've been in England. Mm. So I just, I learned very early on to chew them out. Okay, yeah. So tell me about your mum. I mean, she was a nurse, was she? She was a nurse, holy crap, a <laughs> hundred years ago, it seems. She learned to nurse in England she was a practice nurse for a very long time. She worked in hospitals in Leeds, in Yorkshire. And when we moved back to Trinidad, she worked in the, I can't remember what they call it. I think it was, was it a general infirmary in Trinidad? 
sounds <laughs> like a pretty hard-working lady, doesn't he? Oh, dude, <laughs> the the word hard-working just is shoved into my mother with a with a gold-plated pl- plaque on her chest. Right. You know, she, from the moment I remember not having her in the house, you know, she would, I'd be be going going coming home from school. She'd be at work. I'd see her for an hour. She'd make make us dinner. And then she'd disappear in the night. She'd be working. Yeah. And you know, when I got older, I kind of understood that you know she worked in a doctor's surgery in the afternoon. She'd be home long enough to make her something to eat. I would either go to a babysitter's or someone would come round. She would then go to a nursing home overnight and look after the patients there. She'd come back first thing in the morning, go to sleep for some hours, wake up, spend her afternoon at a doctor's surgery and repeat. So from a very early age, I saw hard work up close and personal. Yeah. And to me, that is what good people should do. They should work hard for the things that they want and things that they love. Yeah. I mean, was was there any particular... Um, values outside of obviously hard work or anything that you particularly remember that she taught you that you kind of really still hold dear to today till today to me it's proving one's worth when you are part of an organization part of a a team you have to prove your worth and when I worked in Le Supermarché for me it was an awful environment because the customers had no regard for us whatsoever the management didn't care didn't care if it was a 14 hour day they didn't care if there was everything in a bin you know they just wanted you to keep on doing what you did and to me my mentality was do the best that you can do the best that you can and you'll be rewarded for it yeah and to a certain degree that is true but modern modern day businesses and infrastructures they're happy to let you work if you're willing to do do hard work yeah which is a bit of a shame but mm. it's something i still do you know I, I, the job i work now I, I take on extra things i bring things home stay up till midnight doing exercises for the kids and that is the kind of person that i do i do to me it's doing what's necessary yeah so yeah, it sounds like it's kind of got those hard work values, I guess, got passed down. Mm. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. I mean, your mum passed when you were quite still quite young, didn't she? She passed just after my 18th birthday. Yeah. At Tigers. Tigers opened officially in 2000. I think it was March, March or April 2000. We'd had the gym for a few months before that. Gary and Michelle were getting the things inside it set and the mat laid and the carpet put down the ring put up and the night that we officially opened i just did inverted copies and you can't see it there it is did it again officially opened i was at work that day and the police came into the shop and told me that mum had died on the way home from work so she'd spent the night in Bradford, in a nursing home, looking after older people in his care home. She'd spent two hours getting home on a bus. She'd gone to the post office just outside our house, and she left the left the post office and dropped. 
She died of heart failure. Right. So. Mm, how did you deal with that? I mean, had you already started training with Gary Michelle in like the church area before like Tigers Bit opened? Or? Yeah. yeah. I was with Gary Michelle when they first started teaching when they kind of broke off from Richard Smith and Michelle was fighting all, all the Thai girls everywhere. Yeah. And they essentially took me in. The, the, the new when my mum was around and they knew that my mum was very busy and she was always at work and when she wasn't working, she was travelling to work. And when she wasn't travelling to work or working, she was asleep because she was constantly tired yeah. and staying up all night. So I walked into... Gary Michelle's place in the church hall and I remember the first conversation I, I don't quite know why I said it you know and Gary, Gary there was a bunch of us having a conversation and Gary said what do you want from Thai boxing and I looked him in the eye and I went I want to fight Yeah. I don't know why I said that maybe it just sounded cool in my head and he escapes my mouth <laughs> but that's where it was that's pretty much how our relationship started i wanted to fight and then i found that i was really really good at it for a time and is that kind of how you kind of dealt with yeah yeah just kind of getting aggression um i was never i was never angry it was it's a weird thing when i consider losing my mother I'd always been pretty much on my own as it were, as it was already. So when she died, when I told, when I'd seen her in the hospital, because I had to identify the body, yay me. It was a very surreal kind of moment, and I remember think, thinking very selfishly that. I was alone because that's how I felt I, for 18 years for as long as I can remember it had always been me and my mother and at that point at 18 years old yes I was working I didn't have any idea how to look after myself so I remember sitting in the police car and thinking I am alone now that's how I felt at the time and Gary and Michelle were there at that point not to pick up the slack or re- or replace but they were that support structure that I needed at that time yeah and they didn't want anything at the time they were happy for me to spend time with Mark their son they were happy for us to kind of hang out together happy for me to come around to the house every now and again they were happy for me to just be part of their family unit and I think that's where a lot of my loyalty goes that's where it comes from yeah and I instilled it so they were there for me when I lost my mum and they were there when I started rebuilding myself right so I guess in that kind of rebuilding process, then you started to compete, didn't you? I was competing when my mother was alive right. on a very low level. So yeah. we just started kind of going to other clubs and it was still, well, it was before the time of this no decision rubbish. Okay, yeah. 
you know, and it felt at the time at 17 years old fighting a grown man or going against a grown man, it felt like a fight. It felt like the scariest thing in the world. Uh, yes, I'm okay at what I'm doing, but that guy looks like a massive biker dude. He's really tall. He's really wide. Apparently, I wear the same much the same amount as he does, but he's covered in tattoos. He looks quite scary. And then that just was all right. You know, we had the fight, and yes, it did pretty good. And it felt like the biggest thing in the world at the time. You know, and I think each step up is like that. You know, you go from these interspars to amateur competitions and these semi-pro competitions and each one feels like the biggest thing you can possibly do. And suddenly you find yourself in the middle of a crowd that's huge in a stadium. And it's, again, it's a really big deal. Yeah, tell me about your path to the British K1. Holy shit, that was a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> it was an utter fluke. Was it? The, f- the first one, I'd, I'd had like three or four pro fights and they'd gone really well. So the first two dudes, um, one guy was in Oldham and I crushed his nose, which just made it bleed nonstop. So it was a T, that, that kind of ended on a TKO. The second one was a pro fight in, I think it was, that was another one in Oldham. And knocked out the guy in the final round with my lovely spinning back fists. Mm. Yeah, baby. Um, <laughs> Gary stood at the side of the ring screaming and swearing, back fist, fucking back fist. <laughs> He got told off for swearing. Oh, really? Yes, he did. He got told off for swearing. Referee told him off. I did the back fist. The back fist just landed on the side of this guy's head and he dropped. Yeah. He got back up and I dropped him again. And then, you know, it was it was carried out. So I'd had a few fights that had ended really well for me. And then there was a period where no one wanted to fight me. And the only logical step forward was this K1, which was kind of gaining momentum through this kind of mixture of, of um, fighting styles to see who would do the best. So the K1, I didn't know what it was at the time. You know, someone said, oh yeah, K1 rules. I don't know what that is. Please tell me what that is. So the whole idea of having a karate dude against a boxer, the whole idea of having a boxer against a kickboxer, to see who would do the best. Yeah. I like that. That's a really cool idea. Excuse me. The, I didn't think that I was good enough until someone showed me, me, showed me, me recorded fighting some of these other dudes. And it was like, you know what? That actually looks pretty all right. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and the last one that I did where I got to the final, holy shit, again, a fluke. Gary had come to me and said, do you want to do the, the gay one? Do you want to be entered for it? And I was like, all right, I'll do it. So, okay, so we need to start training. This is in November and the competition was in February, I believe. It was not very far on. 
and I'd done a shed load of work and it just wasn't enough. I look unfit when I look at the recording now and it is a little bit embarrassing. The performance was okay. You know, I've managed to get through the rounds, but it felt, even looking at it now, I hear people talking about it, it feels like a constant gasp for air. So it did happen. I mean, I was strong enough to do enough damage to Gordon that he couldn't go on. Did you, you, you know about that? No, I, I, I've not seen the fight. I've, I've only seen not. the pictures of it. Oh, dude. I've got it on video if you want to see it. Oh, really? I do. We'll have to. For the entire fight, Gary told me to just stick to jab, cross, low kick. You know, Gordon was taller than I was. He had a longer reach and he was a pro boxer. So we were banking on his legs not being particularly strong. So that's all I did. I did one to low kick and then when I started gasping <laughs> I just kept kept kicking him as hard as I could. At the end of the fight, he beat me on points. I was getting changed, we were ready to leave, and then someone comes through the door and says, Nick, do you want to fight again? Pardon? Gordon had to go to hospital, you've broken his knee. Alright. Okay. So I've broken his knee. Yeah. Okay, let's go again. And unbeknown to me at the time, Gordon had caught me with a really heavy low kick and my leg, my left leg, had started going dead. And I didn't know until I was walking to the ring for the second fight that my leg was actually going dead and it had suffered some damage. And I was just dragging it a little bit. There's On the video that it got screened to Sky, there's a, a shot of me bouncing, which I never do. I'm yeah, trying to just I'm very keep. Aware that you don't yeah, bounce. I don't bounce. Yeah. I don't bounce, man. I'm a big guy. <laughs> Bouncing is not my thing. Um, and that's me trying to keep the feeling in my leg. Right. So the second fight was with Chris Batchelor. Chris was a very light, whippity fighter. He's very slim. He's very lean, very quick. So I was completely outpaced when it came to hands I was already knackered I was suffering with my leg a little bit and he got a bit confident you know he was well ahead in points he got a bit confident during the later rounds he came in and I just hit him as hard as I could with my left and he he tree trunked he just kind of like fell over to the ground and stayed down again if you watch the video there's a lovely shot of me hitting him in the head with my left hand, him falling off my fist, me turning and walking away. It's quite a badass moment when you look at it. Was that because you just knew he was... No, no. I, I think he'd gone down and people rushed in. Right. As soon as he'd he'd kind of hit the canvas. And I just thought, right, get out of the way. I didn't... I don't remember at the time thinking, right, I'm done. You know, I've done it. Yeah. He's, he's down. He's staying down. I don't need to be here anymore. I don't remember thinking that. I was like, right. <sighs> Breathe. And that is where I was. And then in the third round, in the third fight, he was all right, by the way. 
Chris Boucher, though. He was okay. Just, I think he he got a bit too close at the wrong time. And it just, it came round heavy. So, as I say, I'll show you if you've got time. Um, in third fight, Gary Turner. The smiley dude. So was this all on the same night? Oh, yes. This, this is what the, the, the tournament is. Right. The K1 tournament is an eight-man tournament. So they put them all together. An hour later, the, the winners of the previous round go together. Yeah. And to see who's the best. Okay, yeah. So the third fight on the night, I won that last one. Just checking. No change. <laughs> um... My leg was just, I was dragging it by that point. Yeah. He caught it once and I tried to kind of move away and it, I left it behind. Like, there's a, a clear point where he catches it, not very hard, and I wince. And then he catches it again and I just drop, stand back up. He immediately targets it, I drop again. <laughs> I tried shifting, doing something to shield it and I just couldn't couldn't pick it up to defend. I couldn't move it quick enough to get it out of the way. And he he put me down for the third time and that was it. K1 rules, three times knocked down, you lose. And that pretty much was that K1 tournament of 2004, I believe. So, yeah, good times. Yeah. We like good times. What is it like when... I know when you're in in the ring and do you feel, I imagine if when you're in the fight it's it's different in that you don't feel the pain oftentimes immediately. But then when when you stepped out of the ring now and do you think you're going home now for you? You're you're, you're you know you you don't you don't even fight. Unfortunately, lost points. And then when someone comes in and says to you, "Do you want to fight again?" What goes through your head that that time? I think. <laughs> what do I? What do I think when someone says to me that? You know that feeling you get where you've got a day off from work, mm. and you've you've kind of planned your day. You know what you're gonna do, and someone rings you up and says, "Right, Jenin, this guy hasn't come in. Can you come in and cover his shift?" And you get that really shit feeling where you you know that you planned your day and you were gonna have a good day, just chilling out and doing what you wanted to do, and then that plan has just been shot. It's like that, right? It's you gotta you you've gone through the hard bit. I mean, I was I was told quite early on that my odds weren't good in the K one in that particular tournament because God Miners was an established, like I say, a pro boxer. He was a pro kickboxer for a while. Um, all the other fighters were quite famous, well known, well established, and everyone knew who they were. They knew them to be tough fighters. And me, I was just some kid from Leeds with Gary Michelle, who, yeah, Michelle's quite famous and well-known, but who's this Nick Shepard dude? Yeah. So I was I was comfortable with the fact that I'd done as well as I did with Gordon. I'd walked out of it. I'd not been knocked out, which was quite nice. Yeah. Um, and I'd kind of wound down. I think that was probably one of my biggest mistakes. I got back to the room and just wound down. And then I was concentrating on getting home. And like I say, we were pretty much walking out of the door when they said, Gordon's gone to hospital. 
<laughs> it's a mad thing. It is. Did it? Did it go through your mind to just say, "No, I don't want to fight again"? Or was it? Um, you know what? No, one never came into my thoughts. I can honestly say that I was prepared to do it again. That, like I said, my mistake was winding myself down, but I never once considered not doing it. Someone said, "You want to go again?" It's like, "Yeah, let's go again." What did it mean to you for competing? Did it? Um, I think <laughs> that it is one of those things that I never quite figured out. What does it mean? People think about becoming famous in modern society. People talk about wanting to be known. I think my only goal with competing was proving that I could do it. Proving to yourself? Kind of. Again, like I say, it's a weird, weird thing. As a kid, I was unfit. Regardless of all the martial arts stuff, I was never small. I was all, I've always been large. But when you think about styles like karate, they're not full contact styles where people get knocked out as a regular kind of winning strategy. You know, in karate, a knockout usually means that you're not going to get get anywhere. People are going to frown at you because you haven't controlled yourself. Right. But in Thai, in boxing, it was kind of the expected outcome. You know, how do you win? Knock them out. So when I think about what I was trying to prove, I think it was more that I can stand in the ring and fight effectively enough to look after myself. And fight better than the other guy. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why losing didn't bug me. Because when we started fighting and I was beating a few people that everyone knew, no one liked me. That wonderful time when you walk out, someone says, Nick Shepard, and everyone goes, boo. Okay. And I don't care. That was that that never bugged me, and you know, say, "All oh, right, you've you've lost this fight. Why? Because you're not the home lad." Okay. You know, and this is before the fights even happened. Okay. Right. You know, and I walk into it, and I, I will try and steamroll this person, whoever it is. Just do what I do. I try and steamroll. I'm trying to run into him as hard as I can, as fast as I can, and. You lose it, yet when you step out of the ring, everyone's like, what the hell was I doing? You know, you're bouncing from one side of the ring to the other. Why did you lose? It's like, I'm all right with it. I did my best. And if people need to lie to get the result they want, so be it. I know that I can overpower that guy if I need to. Right, yeah. Tell me, like, a bit about your fighting style. Like, I know you've got a notoriously iron chin. <laughs> <laughs> an iron chin. Chin. Um, chin. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I Fighting style. 
I grew up with a lot of different influences. The martial arts genre from filmmaking, for instance, in the mid-90s was one of them big things. You know, it was kind of coming out of the 80s and it was evolving from being cheesy martial arts stories where anything that involved punching and kicking, it needed to be done. You know, no retreat, no surrender. I love the movie, but it is completely and utterly corny. Right. It's so badly acted, it's not even funny. And again, it's stuff that I love, you know, and in um, Mortal Kombat, the original motion picture was one of the coolest things I ever saw as a kid. Just that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to get to that point where I was good enough to do stuff like that. So, but you got for a big guy, you've got you're very nimble, very um, agile. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah, quick enough to catch you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hate the idea of someone being large and slow. To me, if you are large, then you have the ability to move at the same rate as someone smaller. So it comes into that mental block where large people say, right, I'm big, so I'm always going to be slow. And I try my absolute best to smash that to pieces. You know, yes, I'm big, but I'm going to be as quick as you are. I'm going to be as mobile as you are. And yeah, if it surprises you, so be it. Yeah. So, um, kind of got to these, you know, high levels of this big tournament. When, when was it for you that you decided that, um, you're not going to compete anymore, it's more? I never decided that. I made the mistake of getting married to a woman that was poison. Right. Unfortunately. And her paranoia made it impossible to train well enough to be fighting. So when I did, it wasn't good enough. And whereas I wasn't particularly losing badly, I knew that I couldn't go on doing what I did. So I made a decision to either cut her out or ignore her to a point where I could do what I needed to do to keep on fighting and competing. And then I spent nearly two years with various illnesses, which just knocked me out for a while. You know, I got shingles one year. It was, it was a year when I had loads and loads of competitions. I did like three fights in the space of a couple of weeks. Mm. And on the third fight, a few days before the third fight, I came down with shingles, got home, covered in spots. And just an awful thing. It just knackered. Your immune system just being yeah, just completely battered me. I think me up my immune system, and it took me a while to get over that. Because every time I'd go back to the gym, something would happen. I'd come down with something else. I'd shake it off. A couple of weeks later, I'd go back to the gym. Something else had happened, and then of course I brought the bicep tendon. Done both, haven't you? Before oh, I've done both now. Yeah, mm. I'd just gone got over the whole. I'm stopped being poorly. I'm building my immune system back up. And then sparring with Jay Parkin. Went to hit him in the head. He moved. He stuck his elbow in the way. 
and the bicep tendon just twanged. So that happened. <laughs> and then lived with that for three months before getting it fixed. And then it's lost like 10 degrees of extension. Right. So the arm doesn't straighten anymore. It's painful and it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just like a string of injuries. It's the old story of having one thing getting in your way. I think I could have, if I wanted to, had pushed through it and just done it. But there were other things going on. You know, I'd I'd had a life where I wanted to spend time outside the gym. I wanted to do other things. I wanted to spend time just enjoying life. Spending time with my mum was amazing when she was around. But because she worked all the time, I didn't get to enjoy that time. When I started hanging around with Janine and kind of spending time with her and her family... It was refreshing to have someone that just enjoyed being together and enjoyed having that around. So as far as deciding not to fight, I think if I wanted to, this might be a little bit naive, I could tune myself into it and do it again. Right, yeah. I'd still believe that experience... Trumps a lot of things, you know. Whippets, the small fighters, the the new age of fighters that believe that they can do whatever they do because they've trained for a couple of years. You know, I was there. I never believed I was the best, but I believed that I was able enough to take on the guy in front of me. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Unfortunately, you know, injury and illness and life life factors got in the way for you competing, but it kind of rode, led you down a road that I know you kind of enjoy now, like the teaching aspect of things. Mm. I mean, it, I, I see you very much as a teacher, not only just in your actual job as a teacher, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. but, um, <laughs> you know, um, a teacher of, you know, martial arts and just general, you know, lessons of life, <laughs> if that's the way to put it. Um, tell me a bit about your philosophy on, on teaching like your concepts don't need to you can give examples of Thai boxing or even just teaching the, the kids class but I know you have many concepts that cross over for both of those hmm. so. uh, one thing that I hold quite dear is the Chinese general Xu, who said that if you treat your soldiers like your children they will follow you into hell and back. So, to me, everyone I teach is not necessarily a, a soldier, but if I treat them with the same amount of respect I would give my child, then they respond to me. This is something that I do at the gym. It is something that I do in my school. And I find that the people who treat children as children or students as students are the ones that tend to find a lot of stress in what they try and do. You know, you have martial arts instructors who just treat it as a job. You know, it's, right, you're coming here, I'm going to teach you this move, and that's it. They're not going to make it interesting, they're not going to make it engaging, they're just going to show you mechanics, and mechanics isn't 
fighting. You know, learning should be enjoyable. Learning has to be enjoyable. Because why would you do it? Why would yeah. you choose to do it if you're not going to enjoy it? I guess it's a lot harder for someone to apply themselves to something that they don't enjoy. enjoy. Uh, Isn't that the truth? Yeah. It, that's very true, right? In the gym, I, I try to give people something to make them stronger. I am happy for them to learn to beat me. I would love it if they did. I had a box a few years ago. I taught one-to-one exclusively called Mark. And he got to a point where he started doing the interspars. I think you saw him a couple of times. And I remember sparring with him one time and him being in a place where I couldn't touch him. He was touching me repeatedly mm. in the head, in the body, just running around, running rings around me. And I thought, dude... I hurt all over, but I'm so freaking proud of you. I don't even care. Yeah. You know, I've taught you to fight me. I've taught you to beat me. Yeah. You know, and there may be quick opponents, maybe stronger opponents, but if you can beat me, I'm happy. Yeah. You know, and I pretty much teach everyone the same way. Yes, you may be small. Yes, you may, well, you may be smaller, but you still have the the capacity, the ability to hurt and damage. There was a point in when I was boxing for Jason and he got in a pro boxer who was half my size, quite truly half my size. I was about 18, 19 stone and this dude was nine and a half. Nine and a half stone and I swear I'd never been as hit as hard as this guy hit me. He knew how to punch and that was like being hit by a freight train each and every time he hit me. Couldn't touch him. This guy was half my size, little, slim, lean dude. And this is coming from someone who's been kneed, elbowed and kicked in the head. Never been hit that hard. This guy knew how to hit me and it was a wonderful thing because it meant that I had to improve I had to get better if I wanted to do anything more. So when I try to guide people down these paths, I try to give them something that's going to keep them safe. The ability to have the confidence to stand up to someone who is bigger, larger, scarier than you are. It's a, it's a big thing in modern life because people are happy to just use that size and that scariness to just put you down. You know, you're smaller than me. I'm bigger than you. You know, you'll do what I say. Or I'll bloody bang you. So, no, you're not. You may think you're bigger, but you're not. So, yeah. it's that kind of confidence that I gained through styles like Thai boxing that I'd... I'd love to pass on to people. I'd love to do that. And I know it takes time. And I understand it takes time. I think that a lot of instructors, coaches, teachers don't get that. You know, everyone's expecting an immediate response. People who go to gyms, they want an immediate result. (laughs) The people who teach at gyms try to promise an immediate result. 
and it never works like that. I mean, you know yourself, it has to be a, prog- a progress thing. You have to learn one thing before you can do another. Yeah, you got to yeah, gotta crawl before you can walk. And, you know, Indeed. Yeah. Indeed, and you got to get to your belly before you can crawl. Yeah, I know there's, there's so many aspects I I think of that the, that applies. Like, I think discipline is one, one that kind of correlates well with martial arts. And sometimes you think, well, you can just switch a switch and be disciplined but it's, it's not it's like oh I could, I could get up uh, you know five every morning and go for a run I just don't want to it's like you, you couldn't because you you would try to do it and you'd fail but yeah. if you if you try and get up ten minutes earlier than you do now you can probably do that and you know let's say you go for a walk instead of a run hmm. you probably do that um, and then you know you just keep taking those ten minutes off eventually you'll get to waking up at five and going for a run but if you try and go straight into it, you'll fight, fail every time, you know? Every Majority single time. time you know? Every single time. I spent so many years coming out of the winter festival and people coming at me with the New Year's resolution saying, I want to do this, I want to do that. This is what I want to become. And the first month is pretty cool. Second month is a little bit hit and miss. Third month's done. Yeah. Because everyone comes in with the same idea. I want to create this image of myself, therefore I'm going to put in the work now. But then they ignore the small steps. Small steps are hard steps. And because they're hard, they lose sight of the big picture. People look at the big picture, are overwhelmed by it, and then they stop. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have tried to teach my people, in fact the people that have stick with, stuck with me for the longest when it comes to one-to-one training, they're the ones who I've explained to and understand that small steps need to happen. Forget about the big picture. I've got an idea of your end goal. I'm happy to work towards it. But your immediate step is this. You know, for one lad, it was simple hand-eye coordination, getting him to be able to skip, getting him to be able to put his fist where the pad was. You know, his coordination was awful. It's far better now. And he feels a lot more confident just having that little fix and concentrate on smaller steps, knowing that sometimes just re- rewind it. Teach people how to stand. Yeah. I was in a class a couple of weeks ago and it sounds stupid. But when people have been training for, I don't know, six months, you expect them to know how to have a, know what know what fighting stance is. And then when you show them what your version of fighting stance is and they do it and think, wow, that makes things so much easier. So yeah, that's why we use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, why, why is this not something you already know? And it's either because someone's not taught it and not spent the time to show it as clearly as it should be or they've just not listened to it, in which case they've already lost sight of the big picture. So Right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we could probably talk about those kind of things all day long. Oh, dude. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> good. I wanted to touch on a little bit more about you being a teacher. and um, For me, you're very much a teacher, but for yourself, do you think, when you think of you, do you see yourself as more of a teacher, or are there still many aspects where you're still a student, do you feel? I'm one of these people who's quite happy to admit that I only know a fraction of what there is to know. In Thai boxing, 
I know how to box. I know how to kick. I know how to fight reasonably well. In schools, I know... I know stuff. So, um, it's one of the things that I always say to my kids that I'll always be honest. So, if I don't know something, I won't say anything. Or I won't lie to you and pretend to know because I want to sound smart all the time. If I don't know something, I'll either go away and learn it or I'll tell you, I'll tell you that I don't know. So, I'm quite happy not to know stuff. I'm not happy to not... Um, how can I put it? Uh, happy to go learn stuff. I like to... When it's relevant, when it means something to me, I'll go out and learn it. And there's conversations that I've had with, with kids. We had... Um, I've been trying to get my class to have a little bit more respect for each other because they're a little bit awful at the moment just with their own views our class is very diverse and they're a little bit awful when it comes to the way that they treat each other so I'd pulled up a lot of images of different people inspiring people through history one of which was Florence Nightingale did a bit of research on her because of stuff that I did not know I knew that Janine has a very high regard for her and being classed as the first nurse and the founder of the nursing practice as it is in the modern day is a pretty big deal. So when you talk about Florence Nightingale, you are essentially talking about the start of modern nursing. I also spoke about Martin Luther King. Now, I know Martin Luther King was a black guy in America who stood up for others. He stood up for a change from the way that black people were treated. Am I allowed to say black people on this? Yeah, say what you want. Is that not being racist, is it? Not as a black man, no. Okay, okay, just checking. <laughs> say just what checking. you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and talking to the kids about Martin Luther King, and they couldn't fathom the idea of slavery. They couldn't fathom the idea of having a separate water fountain and not being allowed on a bus because of your skin colour. Yeah. You know, I they... I think Rosa Parks' story is, like, one of the most powerful as well. Yeah. Just that, like, little act of defiance. Absolutely. But you know, it's so it, prevalent, like, in day-to-day life even now. Like, you know, how many years ago was that? And people know, know her name. Yeah, yeah. You know, how many people in modern day can say, yeah, I sat on a bus. People remember me for it. You know, and that... It's not just that sitting down on the bus, it is that act of, like you say, defiance of, why not? Because that to me is, is what, is what, is a, like a defining moment of, of courage, basically. Yeah. And, because it, <laughs> you know, it's easy to be courageous when, when there's no kind of adversity. There's no real threat. There's no yeah. threat. There was... It was is almost unfathomable for people at that time to to have done that, and she said, "Well, that isn't right." And she was yeah. she was living in a time and in a state where they were happy to just shoot her. They were happy to drag her off that bus, buy her hair, and kick her to death, and yet she still did it. 
because you know it is it's a ridiculous concept separating people because of the skin color find it it is one of those things that i just cannot fathom can't do it you come from a different part of the world all right nice to meet you yeah you have a different skin color cool i like your skin color so it's an alien concept is being op- openly racist because of openly prejudice because of a, a simple physical difference. Yeah. I mean, I'd even take it a step further in that I don't even like, and I think something that'll probably change in the future is like nationalism. You know, the idea that we kind of identify as uh, this person's American and he's very proud to be American, you know, the great mm. country, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, American. America. Uh, oh, you know, I'm, I'm British and you know, this is what British is and I'm this. I don't think, I think that is like um, a very strange kind of tribal mentality in itself. I think, I think you got to think there's these arbitrary borders between, you know, Scotland and England, but it's it's the same place. It's like, yeah. there's nothing that changes. Like, there's no reason why I shouldn't, should need a, an official document to go to this different, piece of dirt that we call in France for instance it's <laughs> like why do you get to say that like I'm no different from this other person um, so I think that, I think nationalism is really strange it is it is I, I get why people are proud of their place oh absolutely I, I live with a Yorkshire woman who refuses to leave Yorkshire for any prolonged period of time and she will confess to anyone and everyone who asks that it is the greatest place on earth Definitely has the best tea. Definitely <laughs> has the best tea. We know how to make it. Oh, yeah. I say we. I mean the Yorkshire folk, <laughs> seeing as I'm not officially from Yorkshire. Um, Your adopted son of Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Perkins has said that I'm an honorary Yorkshireman now. Oh, really? Because I've been here so long. The high honour. That is quite high honour. It's very high praise. Mm. The, the separation... To be honest, I do find that people separate themselves. <laughs> you know, you've got things like the... Damn it, can I say things about Islam? Yeah, say what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I think these women and these religious organisations, you know, the Islamic faith, is not something that I've ever been interested in. Like I said, my grandfather was very, very into the mosque. He was very into the community. He was very well known in the community. And I should have paid more attention. But again, I had no interest. To me, your God is nothing to do with me. I'm happy for you to have your faith, but I don't want any part of it. And the the people who force it upon kids. You know, I'm working in a primary school... I see a five, six-year-old girl in the blazing heat having to wear a headscarf because it's part of her faith, yet she's going to be ill because it's so freaking warm and we can't cool her down any other way and she refuses to do anything to to cool herself off because religion says she has to have a heat stroke. Yeah. You know, and yeah. There are people who live in much hotter countries than this, but the climate's not built for it. The people are built for it. 
and when heat happens. Especially with like young kids that can't like thermoregulate as well. Yeah. And you know, the 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 most ridiculous thing for me with these little girls is when you ask them, "Why do you wear your headscarf?" And their answer is, "My uncle bought it. It's a present." Okay, but why do you wear it? I don't know. It's like they don't have any choice in what their faith is. They're told to do what their parents do. Yeah. In a way, it seems like your job is, um, and we'll touch on it again, like the way you're teaching these people values and and like like honesty when you're saying you won't, you're not going to like lie and say that you don't know, that you know mm. something that you don't know. You're trying to teach them those kind of values and morals and principles. Um, but in a way, they've always, they've already kind of become narrowed in their thought to believe in this one path, it don't matter what that path is, you know, which whichever religion or creed or code that is, mm. if you're only thinking about that one path and you've become close to each, every other path, I imagine that can be quite difficult. A warrior who only knows one way leaves himself vulnerable from attacks from all others. Hmm. That's a Japanese one. I don't know who mm. said it though. Um, the... The kids that I have are very rigid. They're rigid in one way or another. They are either devout religious kids that are always with their parents and always told to behave a certain way and do a certain thing, boys and girls, or they're completely slack. Unfortunately, it's a lot of English families, white kids who are just left to do their own thing. And then they're rigid in the way that they behave because they are used to someone not regulating them. And because they don't have that regulation, they don't have that that discipline, they don't respond to people telling them what to do. So, for instance, I have spent a good part of this school year arguing with kids. And it's not it's not logical arguing, which gets on my nerves so much, I can't even tell you. I don't have a word to describe how much it gets on my nerves. You know, you'll say to someone, sit down. I don't want to sit down. Well, you're going to work stood up. Like, yeah, I'll work stood up. And All right. Well, I can't sit down then. It's like, dude, you said you were going to stand up. You're arguing over nothing. You're arguing truly over nothing. And it is like that. It is bumping heads over nothing so many times. And it's because they've got into that rigid way of thinking. You know, they're very linear hmm. and trying to broaden the way that they do things, to broaden the the views and what they what they value. This whole thing of trying to treat treat each other a little bit better for me is an extremely important lesson for them because they have their parents' views. And if their parents view people as being lessers, you know, there are certain parts of the Muslim Muslim community that think that Westerners are completely blasphemous. Blasphemous. Is that a word? Yeah, we'll go with that. Blasphemous. <laughs> <laughs> and people who don't have faith shouldn't be given the time of day. They shouldn't be treated with any kind of decency or respect because they don't have that faith. People without faith. I'm a person without faith. I don't believe in a God. 
I think the 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 lovely stories. But if you are religious and you you believe in your God, or you have a faith. All right. I think it's bullshit, but that's just me. Janine, I've 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 upset my woman a couple of times because she is pagan. Pagan paganism makes a lot of sense in my mind. But at the same time, I don't believe in the moon having a spirit. I don't believe in the trees and the nature having spirits. I think it'd be nice if they did. But I she got very upset with me one time when I said, yeah, whatever. When she was, when she was, um, I think she was getting ready for one of her, like, ceremonies. And I just kind of, like, blanked it. To because to me it wasn't important. And uh, people are entitled to, to the religions and the faith and the beliefs. I have no part in it, no interest in it. Janine believes in the faith of the moon. She believes in the life around us all having its own little magic people believe that a god looks down and to me a god who looks down and is all seeing has all this power but does nothing to temper the cruelty of man is a useless shit it's an unfortunate thing for me to say but that is how I view it and I think that's one of the one of the defining moments as a child I think I was about six five or six and I remember my mother coming home and her being absolutely worn out worn to nothing and it was at that point where my grandfather started trying to put me into this religious path and he said if you ask God God will answer so I think as a child I spent a time asking nothing happened it's not so it's not so much nothing happened but worse things happened so my mother was working she had a car someone smashed into it she got another one it was stolen she got another one and then the mechanic ripped her off and you know it was just a, a series of things over and over again not just a car but um, just things being hard for no reason and as a child as a young child having these things happen over and over again it's like people are telling me that God has a will or things happen in the universe for a reason they may but right now it's a bullshit reason and I don't see any reason for me giving this any more time so at a very early age I started believing in me and the things that I can control which is again one of the values that I push on to my kids and my students so like you can't control the opponent in front of you you can't control the other people in the class what you can control is you bad shit happens what do you do about it are you going to stand there and cry are you going to do something about it There are people who praise God for their friends. I choose my friends. I choose the people I want to spend time with. No one, no divine force does that. I work for what I have. 
I work quite hard for what I have. Do you feel that's very um, empowering to you? Because you're not relying on any kind of external factor, you know, from those days when you saw your mum work so hard that there's um, there's a system there, effort in, product out, product equals happiness. So, for instance, we're sat in this lovely house of yours now, and I know how much, how many years you've kind of gone through a lot of just rubbish times, um, you know, working jobs you don't like, to now a place where I feel like you're, you're in like a quite happy place, you, you enjoy, you know, your work, and you've got this lovely, you know, place where you live now, that kind of thing. Do you feel like it's quite empowered you to have this mindset? The, I am quite clear that with the exception of the food that I buy and the taxing around that I do, that this is my woman's house and it's her and her father's house. They were the ones that had bought properties. They had built their properties up and then sold them together to buy this house. So I know that my contribution to this household is quite minimal. Janine says that it's it's more substantial. She is a little bit of a fireplug when it comes to her attitude and her views. And she will always confess that I bring her balance. Enjoying this house, enjoying my life as it is, is pretty amazing. We have a lovely home. I have a fantastic family. I have a job that I enjoy. And I feel like... <laughs> someone would say I'm jinxing it now. I feel like I'm in a really cool place. You know, not just a housewife, but... I have students that I enjoy. I have kids at school that are absolutely brilliant when they're not being awful to each other. Now, individually, they're pretty cool. Get them as a group, ask them to work together. They'll chew each other up, which is not good. But sitting down having a conversation with one of these kids is pretty awesome. My value at the moment is about becoming more. And for me, it's just putting myself in a position where I can earn more money, which is a very shallow thing, of course. Having more resources. Having more resources, yes. Whether that's time or money, I'm sure. <laughs> I have lots yeah. and loads of time. It's, it's, you know, school holidays are a pain in the ass for me because I like doing stuff. I like working. I don't expect my one-to-ones to be as regular as a regular source of income. It's, it's one of those things that happens. I made myself available for, for the people that want to learn. They come to me, it's all good. I don't expect them to keep on forking out that money for them to learn. It's nice, but again, it's one of the things I, I tell them that if they want to fall into the classes, it's more cost-effective for them. It's crippling to have one-to-one one -one sessions constantly and for that to be the only way forward. Yeah. For some people, they like it that way. You know, there's a few people I've trained who wouldn't go back to a class. They refuse to go back to a class because one-to-ones is the way forward. 
in their eyes. All right, happy to do that. Your choice. Not expecting anything from anyone. So, having this kind of state, I mean, walking around the area is amazing. You know, you walk five minutes one way, you're on the moor, you walk ten minutes another way, you're next to the river, and you've got some really nice landscapes. So, yeah. Long way since you kind of, you know, young you was living in Chapel Town and that kind of thing. <laughs> it certainly is, mate. It really is. Purely because I have met different people. There are some people who are poison and there are some people who nurture. Janine and her family are people that nurture. You know, I spoke briefly about the woman that I married and she was she was poison. She wanted someone to just hang around and be at her beck and call. And she was happy for me to get a taste, for instance, to, to learn to drive. So when I was 21, 22, for a particular birthday, she got me my first few driving lessons. Driving lessons was expensive, didn't have the money to keep on putting it into it it just kind of like fell to the side a few years later we split up within a year of being with Janine keeping in mind that I spent five years with this other chick within a year of being with Janine I passed my test and was driving my own car and it's that nurturing she made it possible for me to do things the job that I hated she made it possible for me to change because supporting you know I'd I'd had support from Gamaki from Gary Michelle when it came to the emotional stability and that kind of place to go Yeah, I had the gym I had them to kind of lean on and hang out with but I never really understood what a relationship was until I was with Janine and having someone who wants you to grow and wants you to do better that is a magical thing Mm. it really is and I keep seeing Casey with girls not going to say much (laughs) keep saying with girls and these girls just fuck around with him so much it's not even funny. It's awful. Mm. You know, that girls unfortunately are girls when they're in the late teen years and the early twenties, they're just playing around because they know that they can get guys to do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, they're pretty, they've got all the power and they can say, <laughs> and yeah, you'll do whatever they want and then they'll drop you. For no other reason than they just got bored. And it's a painful thing to watch. Having a woman who knows what she wants and is happy for you to be there. Happy for you to grow with her. You know, there's certain things that Janine has changed in me and there's certain things that I've changed with her. She, for instance, is a complete Luddite. She hates technology. Right. But she now has a touchscreen smartphone. 
which a couple of years ago was completely unheard of. She hated the fact that a phone had two screens at one point. And you had to have buttons on the inside, you had to flip it open, and then you had to write text messages. Hated that. And then it got to the point where her phone stopped working with things. So, <laughs> just enabling it, you know, enabling it to learn. She bought a computer a few years ago that has all the bells and whistles on. She probably will never use them all. But the fact that it's there and she's willing to learn new things, never have done it. She just said, right, you do it. You know, that's why I have you around. <laughs> you do it. In fact, do you have a girlfriend? No, not uh, not currently. Not really planning on it either. <laughs> because? That's a lot of effort, Nick. That's a lot of effort, expenses. Uh, I've just got too many interests. That's a problem. I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing jiu-jitsu every night. I'm working. I train before I work. Don't have time for a girl. Plus, I'm like, you know, I'm just too handsome as well, so it's hard to fight. <laughs> <laughs> it should be quite easy if you're too handsome, mate. Just, just like, yeah. pick one out of a crowd, put her down. It's all good. Yeah. Um, yeah, not currently. So you got kind of all this more life experience now, and you've learned so much since those days when you were 21, and you were making, you know... I don't know if poor decisions would be the right word, but yeah, it was you know, poor decisions. Um, I'm grown up enough to to say, yeah, yeah, I fucked up. Yeah, it probably didn't seem like poor decisions at the time. Never but it, You just didn't have the perspective that you do now, I guess. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, so <laughs> yeah, it really is. So I guess if if you went back now and you were able to speak to your, let's say, eighteen year old self, that was a big year in your life, I guess. Um, and you, could, you could speak to him and give him some advice. What do you think you'd say to yourself? I have thought about that a few times. As an 18-year-old Nick, I was not a very confident person. People don't... People that know me now would not know the kid that I was. At 18, I was only just turning into who I am now and I suppose the key piece of advice that I would give them give myself would be you're better than you are believe it because I had such a low opinion of myself at the time it was extremely difficult to see any way forward you know didn't think people liked me for whatever reason wasn't good enough to do this, which is where I think the, the proving thing comes from. Um, didn't have enough to offer people to warrant them, give me their time, which is why I think Gary Michelle's relationship with me was really, really powerful and very strong. Um, yeah. It, Do you think... Self-belief. Yeah. Of believing in that you could be more than what you thought you could be, I guess. Mm. Do you think your 18-year-old self would have listened to you? Probably not. Problem, he probably would have looked at me and think, yeah, what do you know? 
you know, it's, and without definitive proof, evidence, and like a practice, it's very difficult for young people to know what it is you want from them. You know, I mean, we've we've spoken repeatedly, you and I, about this whole idea of turning your hip over. Yeah. You know, that's that that silly little phrase that people use. That is, it means a lot, but when you say to someone who doesn't understand it, what are you actually asking? You're asking them to move a part of their body in a particular way. As far as I'm concerned, I need to understand the mechanics of that. And that took me years. I was competing and fighting before I understood what turning hip over meant. You know, and <laughs> it's, it is stuff that requires proof, evidence and practice. Prove that this works. The evidence is mechanical. You know, when we're talking about technique, the mechanics of a, a strike, a punch, a kick, a knee, an elbow, all the mechanics are there. For me, if something moves a certain way, it should have this desired effect. If it doesn't work, something's out of place. That last bit of, of just practicing it, knowing which way to practice. I heard a few years ago that there's no such thing as practice made as perfect. Purely because you can practice something wrong a hundred times and it'll still be wrong because that's what you know. There is only such a thing as perfect practice makes perfect. So you have to know what the good one looks like. You have to know what it is you are trying to achieve with repeatedly doing something. So this act of turning hip over, for instance, you know, there's a reason why I break it all the way down to the foot for people who are learning to kick. You know, I know you do the same thing. The foot moves, the leg moves, that, oh my goodness, it turns the hip. No way. It turns the hip. The hip has the body. The body has the weight. Mass times acceleration. Dude, bring me that force. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. It really is. And it's an amazing thing when you're in a class and people don't know you. I've had it a few times where, for whatever reason, I've come to a class and people don't know who I am. And I'll walk around and I'll adjust something. I'll ask them to do something in a particular way. And it's it's that moment where they get it. The penny drops, the light goes on, and it's like, wow, I've never thought of that. Prime example, I was working with a young young lady couple of weeks ago and she was I was trying to explain that long knees move forward so she kept on lifting her knee because the her pad holder was a little bit taller kept lifting her knee trying to knee this girl in the chest so I'd said to her try and get it to move forward still kept doing the same thing okay so you see that front part of your knee so I lifted she lifted her knee up and I went this is the front part of your knee put that on the pad and then push your bum forward she did it. This other girl, this pad-holding girl, flew backwards. And it was like, whoa, really? Wow, that's amazing. 
it's quite cool. Again, <laughs> you know, practice it the yeah. right way. You know, and it, I think for me, pre teaching is always about finding a way for the student to understand it. You know, Miyagi. Miyagi said no such thing as bad student, only bad teacher. Because a good teacher should know how to get the student to learn. Mm. Boxers, boxing coaches do my head in sometimes when they say, oh, they've got a good job, but not much else. You're their coach. You should be teaching the other stuff. Yeah. Having a good job is not the key to being a good boxer. It's a lovely start. But if they don't know how to do the punches, if they don't know how to box in another way, that's your fault. You should teach them how to how to fill that hole, how to fill that knowledge gap, as it were. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. There's a lot, there's a lot of views when it comes to teaching, so <laughs> we we could be here for a very long time. Yeah. So we'll probably end this in a in a minute. But cool. One of the things I just thought was really we didn't go into too much I thought was really important was when you were talking about that you're kind of teaching the kids about respect and you're always being honest with them. How much of like your teaching style is kind of teaching what's on paper versus these are the values and and the kind of yeah, the values that you need to success to be successful throughout life in whatever avenue you got. So for me, for instance, um something I always try to there's one integrity mm-hmm. you know, being honest to yourself is probably the hardest one Definitely. <laughs> and of course honest to other people and then um, discipline are like the two biggest ones for me and there's loads more like there's a whole host of like the core like four core commandments for like the Royal Marines and then there's another ten ethos ones and they're all very important but those are like the two that really stand out to me mm. is there any other things that you kind of teach that's like really important for your kids. I know you've already said like respect and you've already been kind of leading the way with integrity. I preach ownership for one's actions, good and bad. The one of the assemblies that we do in the classroom was like a an inspiration social socially acceptable kind of presentation of good character so what we do with the kids is we have this assembly and in the classroom and the job the the aim of the assembly is to get them to value themselves so the teacher that i started the year with had this brilliant plan to kind of get the kids thinking about their future what would you like to do would you like to be a doctor what would you like to do with the rest of your life and then show them the steps to that. So one of the girls wanted to be a farmer, which I think is absolutely amazing. She's the really, really sweet little girl. She's from Indonesia. Very quiet, very, very lovely. Um, and she's one of these who always tries hardest. And when you when you think about the steps that it takes to become a farmer... Yes, you have to care for animals. Yes, you have to do some mucky work. But then you've also got the financial aspect where maths is really important. Showing that element is a little bit overwhelming. And she'd never thought of that. You know, we would play this game where I'd given her some money 
for something she'd, she'd given me. Like she'd given me a load of wheat. I'd given her some money for it. She went and bought some more seeds to plant. She got something wrong with the harvester, so she had to fix it. And then she ran out of money. It's like, what do I do? <laughs> I went, well, these are the things you have to learn, isn't it? it like, so we, we spoke about um, fixing that and how to work around it and how to make it work. And she understood or she gained some kind of understanding for how much effort it would take to run a farm as a business to make a living out of it. One of the lads was dead set on becoming a parkour runner. That's all he wanted to do. For the first three months, that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to be a parkour runner. And he was like, I said, do you know how hard it is to be a, a parkour runner? Have you, ever, have you looked into it? He's like, no, 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 but I've seen it on YouTube and there's loads of stuff there. I went, okay. Do you train it? Do you, do you actually go somewhere to learn? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I go to a club every Wednesday. Okay, fine, cool, cool. So you got a good idea of what you need to do. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> talking about 10,000 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we were talking about how to make money out of it. Mm. And he's like, oh, well, I'll go a place and do competitions. I'm cool. How many times a year do you think you'll do the competitions? He's like, um, it's an all real, they happen all the time. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm not even going to take it away from you. It's your idea. That's what you want to do. Let's make it happen. So, even though I knew that this kid has no staying power whatsoever, he's afraid of hard work. Let him have it. It's like, you know what? Who am I to tell you you can't do that? Of course you can do it. You know? I know what it's like being shot down. You have this wonderful big idea. You have this fantastic concept. And someone says, oh, yeah, you're not good enough for that. It's a devastating thing. And I'm more aware of the psychological effects of what adults especially say to kids that knocks them off and stops them from learning. I am working with a particular person at the moment who has started mirroring the negative behaviour of someone else in school and it is an awful thing to watch and be unable to stop. Just the fact that they've seen it and they're copying it. And I can't stop that. This is not the way you behave. Yeah, well, whatever. I don't care about you. What you guys say, but what you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that if you were to act like this in the street as an adult, you would be arrested. So yeah, whatever. Like, you know, so a lot of it is self value. Because so many of our kids, whether they are loud, whether they are quiet, a lot of them have a really, really shitty self-image. And I hate to say it, but a lot of it is the parents. When I look at people like yourself, you're a well-turned-out young man. You know, you've got... Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You have good values, you have a good work ethic, you're not afraid to get your hands dirty, you're not afraid to try new things. And it feels like you have a lovely self-image of yourself. So when I see kids who are fantastic and they've got these wonderful ideas, 
but someone says, "Oh, we don't. That's that's not good. Let's not go there." You know, I I knew a, a young woman a few years ago called Kiva. She was brilliant, absolute gem of a child. <laughs> she used to write stories, and all of her stories ended up with all the characters dying. <laughs> it would always happen in a wonderful way. You know, she'd have this wonderful story, which unfortunately ended with all her characters dying. But Good theme, though, it was consistent throughout the stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she knew where she was going. Yeah, she she <laughs> thought about it. There. She came up with like a, a Walking Dead scenario okay. where the first wave had hit and it'd kill seventy percent of the world's population, and then the the thirty percent left over would start warring with each other. That'd kill another twenty percent, and there'd be ten percent left over. And she'd have this wonderful. Kind of step by step thing. <laughs> I thought, I know it's not healthy for you to be thinking about this, and I know you're getting the ideas from these shows that no one is is regulating at home. She's a happy little girl. She's she was eight when I started started working with her. I was with her until year six when she left. And I, to me, she was a very well balanced young lady. Let her have her imagination. Let her have her stories. When it comes to the slightly more dreamy ones and they're coming up with all these fantastic stories. There was a a lad called Talib who had to put a Lamborghini in every story that he wrote. Every single story had to have a Lamborghini. And it's like, fine, yeah, whatever. Why not? Oh, McDonald can have a Lamborghini. Why not? Stack it, Lamborghini mate tractors. Falling on that farm. <laughs> what was he selling at that time? <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's this kind of new craze where people are understanding that educational bodies, because they are forced to follow a curriculum, they stifle creativity. And it's a sad thing. It's, yeah. It is unfortunately true. I have... I've had the good fortune to work with some really, really good teachers. And the year six teacher that's in our school at the moment has been told to focus solely on getting good results for the SATs. Oh, that's what it feels like. I don't know that to be true. That's what it feels like because everything that year six do at the moment is about learning the SATs papers and learning, well, learning the SATs style questions and giving them the ability to look at the SATS paper and not lose the cool with what's being asked of them. I mean, I, do you remember your SATS papers? I remember it quite well, yeah, because I remember just doing endless mock exams for SATS. Mm. Like, I think that that's what I remember from doing my SATS. Just, I think I did actually a lot better than people had expected to me to do, <laughs> but it was because I was so familiar with every question they were going to give me because we did yeah. like every mock paper they had for it for the last 10 years or something yeah it feels like that that process of getting kids to conform to the sats format is again it's it is rigid Mm. it is so rigid that the kids don't get chance to enjoy the time in school and i believe that you know it's back to treating soldiers like children if you treat them like they're your own I've always tried to make my class and the kids that are around me as 
not familiar, I suppose it's that controlled family element, you know, I'm hard on you because I want you to do well. Yeah. People at the gym, I'm going to mill you into the ground because I want you to do better. I'm going to be hard on you at school. I'm going to keep telling you off. I'm going to keep on making sure you're not getting into the wrong place because I want you to do well. Yeah. I don't want you to spend your time in trouble. I want you to spend your time learning stuff and doing cool things. Mm. I worked with a young, young lad a couple of years ago who had a really, really shitty home life. He was dismissed by his father. He was ignored, not neglected, but ignored by his mother. And I made it my kind of purpose to be there. That was it. Just be there. Whether he was good, he was bad. Whether he was achieving well, whether he was working hard, whether he was just having a slack day, I was there. And that was it. That was my only goal, to be there for him when he needed me and if he needed me. And I'll be honest, I had him for two years, but the back end of the, th- of the second year, he didn't need me. And I was happy with that. Because for me, he knew that if he needed to come back, if he needed to have a breakdown, if he needed someone to rein him in, he'd come to me. You know, wonderful moment when it kind of flipped. He came to me and said, Mr. Shepherd, I'm feeling a bit hyper. Can we go out and, and burn off some energy? I went, cool, let's go. <laughs> we spent about 20 minutes charging up and down the playground just at full speed because he was that kind of hyper kid and he needed that outlet. And of course, all the other adults will say, well, we've got lessons to do now. Or we'll see. Yeah. And people will just shut that down and just let him boil in his seat and let him just wind himself up because he can't he doesn't have that outlet. Yeah. But Whereas at that time he's like he's not paying attention when he's, No he isn't. Yeah, he's like he's thinking about a hundred things because he's so like you know, hyper yeah. at that moment. Yeah. You've lost twenty minutes when he's charging round, but for the rest of the day he's probably actually gonna pay attention yeah. to what you're telling him. And you know, it's it's giving up something that you're willing to part with. You know, I'm willing to let you have some time outside. You are going to complete this work before you do anything else. So we're going to go out now, we're going to come back in, and then we're going to get it done. And it's like, okay. And that was logical. You know, that worked for him. And we had a, a really kind of good relationship one of the support workers at our school, he got into trouble and for some reason he wasn't with me at one particular point at dinner time. And someone else had got to him first. So when I went to, fa- went to find him at the end of dinner time, he was with this support worker and she said, oh, look, there's your mate. I went, pardon? <laughs> so he was like, Mr. Shepherd is your best mate. Do you know that? And he's like, what do you mean? Thinking you completely mad woman, um, Mr. Shepherd. What what does he, what does Mr. Shepherd do with you? Is that oh, he works for me and helps me with my lessons? And what else? And what she was getting at was the fact that whenever he gets to a point where he's gonna be an ass, I calm him down, or I take him out of the situation because I can see him either winding up or spiraling out of control, and I'll take him away. 
and I'll give him steps to keep himself safe. You know, one of the key things was him keeping his hands to himself. So many things about him grabbing people and throwing them to the ground. So I just came up with a really simple rule. Keep your hands to yourself, mate. You know, if your hands are to yourself and people can't accuse you of hurting them and pinching them and throwing them around, your hands are in your pocket. And proved it. I was quite happy. Proved it one time. We stood outside a classroom. I turned my back. And I looked over my shoulder to see one lad throw himself to the ground. Get up. And then say, Sir, Ellis just grabbed me and threw me to the ground. I went, stop lying. I went, eh? And Ellis just stood there with his hands in his pockets. He'll watch you do that. And the fact that Ellis hadn't moved his arms. Yeah. He just stood stood there with his hand, hands in, kind of in his coat pocket. Said he hasn't moved his hands. How could he get you? And he, Ellis, I remember him looking at me, Ellis looking at me, and thinking, "Yeah, this makes sense." You know that that understanding that I don't want to control him. I don't want to force him to do stuff. I'm trying to give you stuff that you can use on your own trying to give you something that will enable you to be better, that will keep you out of trouble, that will not piss people off, as it were. Yeah. I think those are, like, the most valuable things you probably teach them, those kind of things like that. Cause, I'd like to think so. I mean, I don't remember anything that I learned on my SATs, you know? Ain't <laughs> <laughs> that the truth? But I remember that... I remember that when I do a lot of mock tests, like I'll, I'll get pretty good at stuff. So I've learned the concept there of, you know, hard work over time, you know, effort over time equals result. You know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, all the, all the other things you were talking about there where you've, you've not just taught them, you know, the actual things to pass the paper. You try to get them to be more creative. Like you said, yeah, I think that's the best thing. Cause, I mean, the way of testing people that we do now, I think, is, is like really outdated. We've got an opportunity to um, really have school as like a really fun environment. I feel like I mm. didn't enjoy school. I didn't even know I like I like to read things until I left high school and college. <laughs> like one of the first books I had read from cover to cover was like a Bear Grylls book, like Mud, Sweat, and Tears. Very cool. And it was just about you know his journey through through different things and his going to. Um, uh, SAS like reserve selection and that kind of thing yeah. uh, and I loved it I was like what the hell I've just completed a book <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that's never happened before and now I love reading I mean to be honest actually I, I listen to audiobooks way more than I do read now because I just feel it like it just suits my lifestyle better yeah um, and it's a lot easier to kind of you know go back to it as an, an audiobook and that kind of thing I feel mm. but I, I still have a lot I still do read a lot and I've like got a highlighter that I just highlight you know parts of books that I'm reading that are like important to me yeah I do that with post-its yeah um, I feel like I mean there's nothing that you're going to be able to teach them that like for things like uh, maths questions or things like that. So they're not going to be able to look up online and find a, an awesome YouTube video of how to do it. Um, but you're not going to be able to look up online how to learn how to respect others. And yeah, <laughs> those are things you've got to do by actions. And and it's those taking those little steps to become that person. So I think for me, that's what what it should be. 
but obviously I'm not a teacher in any sense of the manner, so... Hey, neither am I. I'm just a guy that hangs around a classroom and helps the kids kind of not kill each other during the day and stops the teacher from pulling her hair out. Roger that. Uh, <laughs> well, we've definitely gone over what we expected. And, uh, Have you run out of space? No, no, no. Um, just, well, uh, we'll cut it there because time and you don't want to eat a play whole evening and everything. I'm cool. But um, I really enjoyed this, Nick. I know this wasn't something that you're very familiar with, so it's probably a bit strange, but I've, I've loved this little conversation. It's cool, man. Um, yeah, cool. Appreciate your time. 